Well, let us uh, stand together for the reading of the word. Proverbs 31, starting at verse 10. Hear the word of God. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when she, excuse me, when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now we're going to talk about a woman of excellence this morning and talk about a mother of excellence. But boys, that doesn't mean that uh, you're off the hook because there are things that all of us need to hear. There are things that we need to hear because... Uh, There are things that we need to know about in looking for a future mate. Uh, There are things all of us need to hear because the Bible says that collectively we are a woman. We are a bride. Uh, we, We are the bride of Jesus Christ. He is our groomsman and we are his apple of his eye and And so everything that we read about in this chapter applies not only to individual women and individual mothers and girls, but it applies to us all as a church. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 3.29. John the Baptist said, 
that he was, Jesus was the bridegroom. <clears throat> Revelation 21.9, the church is called the bride of the lamb. And then Ephesians 5.25 and following, you have the analogy between Jesus Christ and the church and the relationship of the husband to the wife. So there are many applications that uh, we have from this text today and that we will entertain. But I do want to focus on the woman of excellence on this uh, Mother's Day because often it is the wrong kind of women that our culture often promotes and exalts. Uh, the wrong kind of women seem to often make the headlines in our tabloids. And so uh, today I thought we would look at what makes for an excellent woman. Now, first of all, we have to realize something here about this text. And that is, this text is an Hebraic acrostic. An Hebraic acrostic. What I mean by that is that each verse in this chapter, verses 10 to verse, verse 10 to verse 31, begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that it would begin with Aleph, and then Gimel, Dalet, and, and go on down through the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, the Hebrew alphabet will say. Okay, That's how we learned it in, in seminary. But boys and girls, it would be like taking the letters A through Z, and you made your mom a Mother's Day card, and you said, Mom, you are adorable. Mom is beautiful. Mom is caring. Mom is devoted. Okay, and you, you made up a, a special word for each letter of the alphabet, A all the way down to Z, and you gave that as your Mother's Day card to mom. Well, in a sense, that's what we have here. It's just that it gets lost in translation, but it is there in the Hebrew. Each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, just like in Psalm 119. You notice how Psalm 119 is divided in, into various portions, and those portions are the Hebrew alphabet. Now, one of the things that we see about the excellent woman, and uh, verse 10, if you look in your Bible with me, you'll see that she is not only excellent, but she is rare, and she is incredibly valuable. A godly woman is both rare and tremendously valuable. She is a tremendous asset. If you look at verse 10, we read this, an excellent wife who can find, meaning or suggesting that she is difficult to find. She is not just an ordinary woman, but the godly woman is a woman who is also rare. But she also, look at 10b, she is incredibly valuable. And many of you men know what it is, the value that it is to have a godly wife, to know what an asset that a godly woman is to you, for her worth is far above jewels. So that means that she is far more valuable than money, far more valuable than anything we could buy financially. And that is the kind of woman that we are talking about. She is a woman that is to be prized. Now, you young men need to recognize this because there will come a day, God willing, that the Lord may call you into marriage and you need to know, well, what kind of woman should I look for? Well, this chapter tells you what kind of woman you ought to look for. You ought to look for a woman who is rare and who is valuable. A woman who is, uh, who is a godly, excellent 
wife, a godly, excellent woman. Now, I'm going to divide this into three parts today uh, for us, and I don't know if I'll get to them all this morning, but three things for our consideration. The excellent woman is, first of all, she's godly. She's godly. Second of all, she's industrious. And then third, she is wise. Godly, industrious, wise. The only thing I could think of acrostically is wig, backwards, all right? Godly, industrious, and wise. If you want to remember those three points at lunchtime today, boys, uh, when Dad says, hey, what was the sermon about? Wig, think wig, okay? All right, now, godly, industrious, wise, and I want to take you to each of these in this text. Now, I want to start with godliness because I believe that this is the punchline, this is the climax of this chapter. And it's found down in verse 30. So I'm going to begin with the end. All right? I'm going to begin where you find the summation. Look at verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears or reveres, fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Now, you'll note here that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But what's important? What is important is faith in God. Love for God. Love for Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is truly important. Charm is deceitful. Now, how is charm deceitful? Well, charm is deceptive. And that's what the NAS, New King James, and ESV say. Uh, Deceitful is the word NIV uses. Charm is something that is a gift, but it's not a virtue. What do I mean by that? Charm is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Charm is defined this way. One definition I found was this. A trait that fascinates, allures, or delights. Charm is a trait that fascinates, allures, or delights. Or as another definition put it, it is a compelling attractiveness. So there is something about charm that is a gift. You, you know when you meet people that uh, you meet them for the first time, but there is a, an, a an compelling attractiveness about them. This might be described as charm. Uh, oftentimes, uh, this is how we look at people on TV. Are they charming? You know, we, we watch political debates and we say, well, that guy was, you know, he looked presidential, whatever that means. Uh, he was smooth. He, he was alluring. Uh, he was art- articulate or something like that. Uh, often, too often, maybe our culture looks at those things. We, we are bamboozled by charm. He's good looking. He's not got nice hair, you know, uh, things like that. Poor Abe Lincoln never would have made it today. You know, uh, you just never would have made it in modern modern television. Uh, lanky and 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 what all. But. Uh, but we need to be careful. Remember that this is this was true even back then. Saul was a head taller than everybody else. And the Bible says he was handsome to boot, but he made a terrible king. So we have to remember, guys, you got to remember that charm is not everything. And and in fact, we're going to see that there's a danger to charm because danger. The danger is that charm can cause you to not see what's really there in terms of character, godliness. Uh, The people saw Saul and they thought, wow, what a great king. And we need to be able, as young men, to be able to look past charm when you make up your mind about a young woman. 
Make sure that her character is something that you've seen in a variety of circumstances. J.I. Packer has said in his book, A Quest for Godliness, uh, speaking about the Puritans on marriage, he said that, that uh, one ordinarily ought to spend a lot of time with a potential woman. He said, otherwise you may wind up with less than you hoped for and more than you bargained for. Less than you hoped for and more than you bargained for. And that is because sometimes charm can deceive us. Charm, charming people are not necessarily kind. Okay, They may seem kind, but they, that it, charm is not to be seen as a, as a similarity with kindness. Kindness is a fruit. Charm is a gift. Charming people are not necessarily loving. They're not necessarily self-denying. Again, charm is not a virtue. It may be a gift, but it is far less value than the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Even worse, charm can be deceitful because... If all you do is recognize the charm, then that person is not really who they seem to be. Charm can hide things from us. It can hide the fact that they are not a person of character, that she cannot be trusted or he cannot be trusted. And notice what our Bible says here. It says in verse 11 that the heart of the husband trusts in the excellent woman. He can trust her because he knows her character. He knows She's a godly woman. He knows that if he goes out of town, she'll be a godly woman taking care of business and he doesn't need to worry that he's gonna, she's going to ruin their house or his name. So beware of charm. Charm is deceitful. But beauty is vain. Also notice there, beauty is vain. Beauty, like charm, it is a gift from God. Uh, we, we would be fools to deny that. But it is fleeting in the NIV. That's how they put it. Fleeting. Uh, the NAS translates it vain. Physical beauty is, is something that is a gift, but it is only enhanced by godliness. You know, I, I bet all of you men can probably relate to what I'm saying, and maybe the women, women as well. There, maybe you've met somebody, a, a woman, and she didn't strike you immediately as physically uh, beautiful, but as you got to know her, what happened? As you got to know her, the the beauty came out. The physical beauty came out, and and godliness is always a complement to physical beauty. Beauty is a is a gift from God, but without godliness, it is not that great of a gift. Proverbs says this: that beauty without godliness is like putting a ring on the snout of a pig. Now, you look at Solomon. Solomon had many, many beautiful wives. He was king. And the old saying goes, it was good to be king. But yet, what, what, was, what was the quality of these women? They, they, these women were idolaters. They worshipped false gods, and they, in the end, they led Solomon astray in his later years. For a while, he seemed to be able to live with the, with the tension between his service to Jehovah and the wives that he had who were serving other gods. But then as you, you read through the historical accounts, he seems to compromise more and more. He gave them their own places to worship. He wouldn't worship with them, but then he would give them their own places to worship. But then later in his own life, the Bible says that Solomon finally gave in to that too, and he began to worship where they worshipped. And, and, and the offerings and the sacrifices that they were making to their gods, he began to participate in over time. 
They wore him down. You see this with Absalom. Absalom was a handsome man, especially noted for his hair. He'd, he'd, do, a, he'd do a shampoo commercial today if, if he was around. You know, Troy Palomalo of, of today, you know. And beautiful hair. Uh, thick, gorgeous hair. The envy of many women, maybe. And yet, what do we know about Absalom? Absalom was a rebel. He was a traitor to God. He was a traitor to his father, David. He was, he was the worst of David's sons. He led a rebellion against David. He sought to overthrow his father, maybe even kill his father. It's interesting in the ironic providence of God, it was Absalom's hair that got him hung up on that tree and led to his demise. But godliness is, is to be prized uh, above everything else in, in Scripture. If you look at the book of uh, Ruth, um, in chapter 1, we see this account where Ruth was told by uh, her mother-in-law, go back, go back to your gods. And, and she wouldn't. She said, no, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. She put her relationship with her mother and with God first in her life. And, and so she went back to Israel with her mother-in-law. Let me say a few things by way of application. First of all, to the, to the women, um, let me encourage you and charge you today that you put Jesus Christ above everyone and everything else in your life. That Jesus is first in your life as a woman. That Jesus Christ has the first place in your heart. And I say that especially to you young girls. That you give your hearts to Jesus before you give it to any guy. Give your heart to Jesus Christ and make certain that the only way that guy can get to your heart is to go through Jesus. That you be so united with Jesus Christ, the only way a guy can get to your heart is by going to Jesus. That he seeks the permission of Jesus, if you will, to, to pursue you. That you cultivate a, a life, a loyalty... That it, where Jesus is unrivaled in your affections. I mean, think about what I prayed earlier. The Song of Solomon says that Jesus is chief among 10,000. Jesus is more beautiful, more holy, more wonderful, more delightful than, than anyone else is in the world or anything else is in the world. And, and we're fools to prize anything in comparison to Jesus Christ. I, I commend to you the letters of Samuel Rutherford. I've been reading through those letters and I've given those books out to other people. And uh, it's interesting. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Puritan who, uh, for the sake of the gospel, was banished from the church and from his pulpit. And he had to go live in Aberdeen, which I guess back then was the outer edges of the world, and uh, under house arrest. And, uh, and so he had to write these letters to keep up with his people and keep up with his congregation. Now, this is the guy who wrote Lex Rex, which is just an incredible theological defense uh, against the divine right of kings. And, uh, and so it was a very deep theological, political treatise uh, that he wrote. But at the same time, these letters, they are the most pastoral, loving, sensitive letters that you could ever read. 
and, and sometimes they're a little repetitious, but that's only because he never intended them to be put in a book. He wrote the same things sometimes to different people. But, but one of the things that comes out in Rutherford's letters is the excellency of Jesus Christ as a bridegroom, that Jesus Christ is altogether lovely. Jesus Christ is to be prized above anyone or anything else, that, that Jesus Christ is more fair than, than any uh, other person. And, and that really comes through again and again in letter after letter. And I want to encourage you, uh, maybe even to read Rutherford's letters. If you're struggling to have a sense of the beauty of Jesus Christ, maybe you should read some of Rutherford's letters to his church and, and see that and prize Christ. Um, I think often we fall short of the biblical standard of hating our own life. And, and therefore, we incur the guilt of idolatry. I mean, Jesus said that if you want to follow me, he said it's a radical call to discipleship. It's, it's a radical love relationship. That you, you've got to forsake everyone, everything, to follow him. It's got to seem almost like hatred of your own life. Hatred of, of those that you're closest to. Now, boys and girls, Jesus is not telling us to hate our mothers, dare I say that, on Mother's Day. But, but he, he is saying comparatively, com- comparatively, uh, our love for Jesus must be superlative. And, and Jesus Christ must be far, far above anyone or anything else. You know, I, I said to the college women last Wednesday night, that was all who showed up, <laughs> Uh, in God's providence, I, when I talked about this, I, you know, I, I said, you want a spouse who loves Jesus more than he loves you. That's the kind of man you want. You want, you want a spouse who loves Jesus Christ a lot more than he loves you. In fact, he'll love you as much as he does because he loves Jesus Christ and he gets the grace from Christ to love you. So look at Jesus in, in your life and And I think we often don't put enough emphasis on the very first commandment in the Bible, in the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. No other gods. No rival lovers. Jesus Christ is supreme as the God-man. And nobody comes in a close second. Now, let me say to you young men... You need to seek a godly woman, and same for, goes for you. She must be a committed Christian. She must love Jesus Christ supremely. She must love Jesus more than she's interested in you. She must, first and foremost, see herself as in union with Jesus Christ before she ever thinks about being in union with you. And this is where Solomon failed miserably. As godly as a man as he was, Solomon failed here, and you must not. You've been given more than Solomon. Solomon could see Jesus only from a distance. But you've been shown Jesus up close in the Gospels. And so you cannot fail where Solomon did. And then I think, thirdly, I have an application for us all as as a church here. As Covenant Presbyterian Church, what we need to see here is that we are the wife. We are the woman. And the excellent woman, the excellent church, the excellent bride of Jesus is a church that pursues godliness, piety, devotion to Christ. This is fundamentally who we are. We are worshipers of Christ, worshipers of God. 
Now, just as I said that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, let me suggest, too, that is true in the church as well as in human relationships. That there are churches that have an outward physical beauty and elegance to the accommodations or a charm in the way they present slick presentations or programs. And these things are certainly attractive and we are not condemning them in and of themselves. However, we must always recognize that no matter how elegant the church's outward appearances are, God looks upon the heart. And some of the most beautiful churches in the eyes of Jesus Christ, I'm sure, are churches that will never, ever be mentioned in Christianity Today magazine. They are churches probably in very obscure places in the world, in some of the poorest parts of the world, but where the people love God, love Him sincerely, love Him with real sincere devotion and earnestness, where worship takes place in spirit and in truth. And I bet there are places that have no steeples and poor facilities uh, and, and yet are some of the most lovely churches in, in the world in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And that's what's most important. One of the saddest things that our denomination, I think, saw when it came down to the decision to leave the mainline church because Jesus Christ was no longer going to be proclaimed as the God-man, because Jesus Christ was no longer going to be proclaimed as bodily raised from the dead, and, or at least it wasn't, going to be, uh, it wasn't going to necessarily be a necessity that you believe that in order to be a minister in that church. How many people, it was so disappointing for so many of the people who were starting the OPC to see people who didn't want to leave because of a building, who didn't want to leave because of the fashionableness of the church that they were leaving. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to enter into the humiliation of Jesus and have to meet on a school bus. I mean, it's true. One of our churches in our denomination began on a school bus. The pastor stood where the bus driver sits. And the congregation sat in the bus seats. That's how one of our churches started. They didn't want to start in storefronts or in community halls or VFWs or anything like that. Because they, they, they were charmed by the outward appearances, even when there was serious doctrinal error flourishing in the church. And this is a tragedy. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, and it's true of churches as well as individuals. Let me say uh, just some more by way of application. I think if you want to be a godly woman, a woman of excellence, and this is applying to us all here, first of all, we must know the Lord and know His Word. And that means regular, regular attention to the Scriptures, regular attention to the Bible. This is our meat. This is our drink. Uh, this, is, this is the lamp under our feet. It is the light under our path. And it's, the Bible says that it is more valuable than gold. If, if a woman of excellence is more precious than rare jewels, then how does she develop that preciousness? I think she develop, develops it by going to the Scriptures, which are more valuable than gold. The Bible reminds you of God's commandments. The Bible shows you Jesus Christ. The Bible shows you Jesus' life. The Bible shows you Jesus' substitutionary death. And that's not just in the Gospels. That's in the Old Testament too. When you see the lambs being sacrificed. 
It points you to the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who sacrificed himself once and forever. Uh, when you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the Bible teaches you that. The Bible teaches you that there is a future judgment of the living and the dead. And, and so the Bible constantly brings us to Christ again and again and again. Uh, almost on every page, Jesus himself said that the scriptures spoke of him. And, and we need to regularly be devouring the Bible. It's sweet as the honeycomb, we're told, even if it makes our stomach bitter at times. Secondly, we've got to seek the Lord regularly in prayer. Um, if we want to be women of excellence, mothers of excellence, then we're going to need to spend time with Jesus. You know, I can't think of a man who had a busier schedule than Jesus. I know, and I say this because mothers are the busiest of all creatures on earth. But Jesus, I think it is safe to say, his schedule was more packed than anybody's schedule. And yet Jesus could still find time, though he had to do it by getting up early. He scheduled time to be alone. And, it, and it's, isn't it interesting when the disciples would say, hey, where's Jesus? And they start looking around. They go searching for him. Where was he? He was praying. Sometimes Jesus left his disciples. He said, guys, get in the boat and start making your way over. I'll catch you later. <laughs> Walking on the water. You didn't tell him that part. But, but what did Jesus do? He puts them in the boat and sends them on their way. So what? He can go pray. So he can spend time with the Heavenly Father. Now, if Jesus needs to pray and he's the Son of God... How much more do we sinners need to pray? How much more do we need to be finding time, finding a quiet room, finding a closet, finding a barn in the backyard, finding some woods or something, somewhere, if you have a crowded house, some, some type of solitude where you can go and seek the Lord's face in prayer. You know, the more you seek the Lord and consecrate yourself to the Lord, I think the more useful you'll be to Him. You know, uh, you hear that expression all the time, so heavenly minded, no earthly good. I, I don't think that's true. If, I, I think that's a false dichotomy. I think if you truly are heavenly minded, you are the most earthly good. Now, I know what people mean when they say that, but I would suggest to you that those people are not really heavenly minded, who are no earthly good. There was nobody who was more earthly good than Jesus. And there was nobody who was more heavenly minded than Jesus. I would suggest the more heavenly minded you are, the more good you'll do as a mother in this life. Now, if you want your life to count in this world, you're going to need to give yourself unreservedly to him and lose your life in him. You know, one of the encouraging things in Scripture is to see how many godly women there are in the Bible. Uh, I made a list here, and I know this is not even an exhaustive list. I just sat down and made it. But you have Esther, chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. She fasted and prayed in a time of national crisis, ethnic crisis for her people. She asked her uncle Mordecai to do the same when the Jews were being threatened with annihilation and she was the one who instrumentally was used of God to save her people. Did you know you're a Christian here today because God used Esther? There's a sense that Esther is your mother because she intervened 
with the king when she had not been summoned by the king. And the king had the right to put anybody to death who came into his presence without having first been summoned. You have Sarah who submitted herself to Abraham. 1 Peter 3.6 tells us that she submitted herself to Abraham and became the mother of many nations. Even his father, Abraham is father of many nations. So Sarah can be called our mother. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36 to 38, you have Anna, who was a, a woman who married and, and then was widowed after about seven years and gave herself, dedicated herself at the temple until she saw Jesus Christ as an infant. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't know why more Protestants, I don't know if it's an overreaction to Rome and, and Mariology, but I don't know why more Protestants don't marry, call their daughters Mary. Uh, Mary was a godly woman. Highly, she was called highly favored one. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Uh, highly favored of the Lord. Can you imagine being chosen of God to carry the very Son of God in your womb? We have Elizabeth who prayed with her husband Zacharias for a child and the Lord gave, him John, gave them John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord. You have Mary, the friend of Jesus and the sister of Lazarus. She gave attention to the teaching of Jesus. You have the Syrophoenician woman who earnestly wouldn't let Jesus go until he healed her demon-possessed child. Queen of Sheba, she traveled a great distance. She hungered and thirsted for the word of God so much she traveled at a great distance to see Solomon and his wisdom. You have Priscilla who was a church planter with her husband Aquila. She helped start new churches with the Apostle Paul. You have Lydia, who uh, the Lord opened her heart as Paul was preaching the gospel down by the river. And she gave hospitality to the apostles. Martha, who served Jesus and his disciples. You have the widow who believed Elijah in the days of the famine. You have uh, an unnamed childless woman who with her husband provided an upper room for Elisha. Because they perceived that he was a man of God. He was a prophet. And they provided hospitality for him. And we could go on with others. Maybe that you have a favor that I haven't even mentioned yet. But all of these women were godly women. Godly examples for both women and men alike. These are our mothers in the faith of Jesus Christ. They've gone before us. And we are who we are today because of these women that have been mentioned in the Bible. But I've got to keep moving here. Secondly, the woman... Of excellence, the mother of excellence is industrious. She is industrious. I'll look at just a few examples. Verse 13, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. Verse 14, she's compared to a merchant ship. Verse 15 and 18, she works long hours. Verse 15, she provides for her family. Verse 16 and verse 24, she engages in commerce, in real estate. See her selling at the marketplace to the tradesmen. She's business savvy. Verse 27, again, she does not eat the bread of idleness. So we see here that the woman of excellence is an industrious woman. A woman who gives herself to the work of the Lord and, and her calling. However, God has particularly called her at that time in her life. And that calling 
sometimes changes as your life goes on. But what, are we, what should we say about this? I, I have a few things I'd like to say. First of all, we should remember the admonition of the Apostle Paul that whatever your hand, whatever you find your hand doing, the Lord says do it with all your might. Uh, a lot of motherhood seems mundane, but I think we should let God be true and all men liars. And those who want to say motherhood is slavery, motherhood is drudgery, motherhood is this or that. I think we should trust the Lord that whatever our hand is doing, if we do it as unto the Lord with all our might, that He blesses that. He consecrates that work for Him. He uses it for His church. He uses it for His glory. He uses it for His kingdom. So let's be careful when we hear the culture telling us that motherhood is not where you'll really find satisfaction in life. Let's be careful to remember it's one of the highest callings in the Bible. It's one of the greatest callings. And and just because it involves some, you know, cleaning up, throw up, and spit up, and changing diapers, and things like that. These are things that if we do them as unto the Lord, we are doing the Lord's work. You know, a vocation is not just for the pastor. He's not the only one with a calling. You can be a truck driver to the glory of God. And doing that which you do with all your might is unto the Lord. So consecrate your work. Consecrate even the dishwashing and all the vacuuming and all the dusting and all the teaching and child rearing and changing of diapers and recognize this is a calling, a high calling from the Lord and we do it with all our might and the Lord will reward us far beyond that all that it's worth. Isn't it interesting whenever we see Jesus talking about the rewards of the Christian life, the reward always far surpasses what we would perceive the, the worth of the work to be. Jesus says, you are faithful in these five things. Come and be, be in control of these five cities. I'll give you five cities, God says. And I think what he's saying there is what God gives us in eternity God will, will value what you're doing now. Even if the world doesn't value what you're doing. God values it if you will do it as unto Him. If you will self-consciously consecrate your work to the Lord. Though it seem like small work to you. It is God who is going to be the final judge of the value of that work. And, and in God's economy, it's always different than in man's economy. You know, we, we think... You know, Bill Gates has done the most. Now, I'm not trivializing what Bill Gates has done. He's made our, all of our lives better, okay? No doubt about it. But it, it's like the widow's might. You know, you've got these guys who are pouring in a lot of money into the treasury. You know, back then they had this huge, you know, horn that you'd pour it into. And that's how you knew you were giving a lot of money. You know, the coin, you could hear it go in. And there's Jesus and his disciples, and they're watching these wealthy guys come up with their money bags and dumping loads of money in. And here comes this one poor widow, and she puts her little penny in. Kink! And it goes in. 
to the treasury. And Jesus says, this woman's given more than them all. You see, that's how God's economy works. She gave, in faith, all that she had to live on. And when God looks at it, he sees this pile of money over here given by these guys, and he looks at this one little coin, ah, she gave the most. Now, if that's true of money, I do believe it's true of our vocational callings as well. Because we're tempted to think, well, if you really want to do the Lord's work, you know, you need to be a pastor. Got to be a missionary. Do this. I'm just, I'm just changing diapers. I'm just cleaning the house. But you know what? You need to look at it from God's perspective. What has God called you to do? And if you do that with all your might, I believe the same way God looks at money, he looks at your work. And he'll say, boy, look who contributed the most. It was this mother. It was this wife. She did a lot more for the kingdom, sake of the kingdom than a lot of ministers did. You know, I, I love the example of Ian Murray uh, and Sarah Edwards. Y'all have heard me use this illustration before, but I, I really like this illustration. Some of us went up to hear Ian Murray when he came to Fayetteville, Georgia, to speak at Heritage Baptist Church. And he spoke on Sarah Edwards, and one of the things that stood out to me about that lecture was he said, Sarah Edwards, who was a mother of 11 children, uh, John, she had a husband who was probably, probably a modern-day husband, couldn't get away with it, what he got away with. Uh, he was in his study 13 hours a day. And... Uh, I don't think that would fly today. <laughs> so she basically ran the farm, managed the kids. But in addition to that, because her husband was such a prominent minister, he was often sought out by younger men who wanted to be discipled or wanted to glean from him, from his theological and pastoral experience and knowledge. And so she also had to play uh, innkeeper to a lot of men and ministers who would come to seek out Edwards. Well, her reputation for hospitality had grown over time so that when the great David Brainerd, missionary to the Indians, recognized that he had an ailment from which he would never recover and that he was going to die from it, and he himself was a bachelor, he had a decision to make. Where am I going to go? And he decided he would go to the Edwards home. And Ian Murray makes the case in part, not only because Jonathan Edwards was there, but because Sarah Edwards was there. And she could help take care of him in his final days. Well, Ian Murray goes on and he says, Brainerd dies, he entrusts his journal to Edwards, Edwards agrees to edit it and publish it for him. And the point is that it was that journal, once it it was published, it became a, a number one bestseller, if I can use that phrase. Number one New York Times bestseller in colonial America. Shot up the charts immediately and became more instrumental in the cause of missions than anything else instrumentally up to that time. Even into the 19th century, people were reading Brainerd, influenced by it, and sensing a call to the mission field because of it. 
And I think Ian Murray is right when he says, and all of that, humanly speaking, can be traced back to the faithfulness of Sarah Edwards. And I, my guess is there are tens and hundreds of thousands of stories like that that we're not going to know about until the day of judgment when God makes all things plain. And he says, hey, let me show you this. Let me show you how the faithfulness of this one particular mother changed the course of the world. Let me show you how the faithfulness of this one excellent wife did more to advance the kingdom in that particular century than just about anything else. I think it will not surprise me, and I think that's one of the reasons eternity is eternity, because we're going to spend eternity looking at these things and considering these things and marveling at the works of God. So just as the Bible says, do not despise the day of small beginnings, I think it is appropriate to say, do not despise the sense of small callings. And I'm not saying motherhood is a small calling, but our culture sometimes wants you to feel that way. Let me urge you to work hard at your calling. Those of you who are currently mothers, grandmothers. Titus 2.4 says this, encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home. Notice what Paul is saying. Older women, you have a responsibility to encourage younger women. Younger women, you've got an important calling to love your husbands, love your children, be committed to Christ. And I think also as a church, it tells us something. Remember again, I'm making the application, this is not only just for women and mothers, but it's true for us as a church corporately who is the very bride of Jesus Christ, that we as a church be diligent and industrious in the work that Christ has given us to do. We should not be lazy stewards. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty comes upon the church. We need to be industrious people. An industrious wife for Jesus. We need to be about the work of the Great Commission. We need to be about the work of prayer. Uh, about the work of inviting people to church. Hearing of the gospel. All of these things. We are Jesus' wife. Well, I have one final point, And I think I may have to leave it uh, for tonight. Let's, uh, let's close and then, Lord willing, we'll finish tonight. Let's pray.